All right, well, good morning, church. So this morning we're going to be finishing chapter 25 of Genesis. We're going to be talking about Isaac and Rebekah, but really we're talking about Jacob and Esau. Isaac, you know, as important as he is, uh, you know, a picture of Christ that we see in his birth and his death and his resurrection and his marriage, etc. He always seems to be caught in the middle of another great story. Uh, and there's not a lot of time spent on Isaac's life as compared to Abraham's life, for example. I mean, Abraham we were with from chapter 12 to chapter 25 of Genesis. Um, we had like 13 chapters on Abraham, but Isaac we have a handful, maybe, when you look at his actual times that he was there. Not the times that people referenced him, but the time that he was actually there. I mean, you saw him when he was born in chapter 21. We saw him again in chapter 22 when he was like 15 or 16 years old or possibly even older, maybe even in his 30s, when Abraham took him up on a mountain, Moriah, you know, to sacrifice him. And then, you know, then, then you don't see him again until he's like 40 and he's getting married in chapter 24. And now here in chapter 25, when we see Isaac, he's 60. Um, and next chapter, he's going to be probably like 100. So they're, they're, we don't have the same amount of time spent with Isaac as we have with Abraham. And Isaac's always there to almost introduce you to someone else who's going to take the story from, from here on out. <laughs> we had Abraham who, who, you know, who introduced us to Isaac, obviously. With, you know, this is the son of promise who was born to him. But then Isaac is like there to just to pass you off to Jacob and Esau, right? Almost. It's not exactly like that, but... I mean, because it's not too long, he's going to be like 180 years old. The next time you, you, know, you hear about him, he's going to be passing away at 180 years old. And you'll be like, what happened? You know, what went on with, with Isaac? And here's the thing. Isaac is the son of a famous father, Abraham. And he's the father of a famous son, Jacob, who we know is Israel. And he's just sort of in the middle. Right? And his life, when you compare it to Jacob's or when you compare it to Abraham's, doesn't seem, it seems a little more quiet, right, in comparison to the others. And, um, but I, there's a truth here that you should know, which is um, there are more Isaacs in the world than Abraham and Jacob's. And what I mean by that is that there are more who just faithfully continue to do the work of God and don't get the recognition or the book deals or the movie deals or the whatever. Uh, they don't get their name in lights in, a, in that sense like maybe Abraham or Jacob do. Uh, but they are nevertheless faithful contributors to the story that God's writing through the lives of those who do his will. All believers are, are different and unique. I just look around. None of you are alike. But yet we are all made in the image of God, right? And we are all loved by God. And our lives of faith are to be lived for the glory of God. And it goes through the book of generations. I mean, it goes through generations. Genesis is a book of generations. They say Genesis is a book of 10 generations, but they're not referring to actually only 10, like a total of 10. There's obviously more than 10 generations in the book of Genesis, but what they're referring to when they say that is that there are two, it's, it's 10 generations from Adam to Noah, and it's 10 generations from Shem to Abraham. That's what they're referring to when they say that, that, 
that Genesis is a book of 10 generations. And then you have Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And from creation to the end of Genesis, you have over 2,300 years. It's a book of generations. And no generation stands alone. And as I said last week, God's work passes from one generation to the next generation. And through that, each generation is bound to the previous generation. And some generations may get more acclaim than other generations. Yet none are less important than the others. So let's read Genesis chapter 25. And we're going to be starting in verse 19. Through the end of the chapter. Speaking of generations. It says, these are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Paden Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. And the children struggled together within her, and she said, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. And when her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb, and the first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak. So they called his name Esau. And afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob, and Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. And when the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man, dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, verse 29, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore his name was called Edom. And Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. And Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? And Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. And then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word, and I thank you, Lord, for the birthright that we have through Christ Jesus. And Lord, please help us not despise it. I thank you for your word here, Lord, and I pray you speak it to our hearts, and we pray, Lord, that you just continue to work it out through our lives. I thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. So Isaac and Rebekah got married when Isaac was 40, and much like Abraham and Sarah, Rebekah was barren. You know, even the son of promise doesn't come into the promise easy. It involves, uh, you know, patience and prayerful endurance to, to come into the promise. You know, Isaac would be 60 when the boys were born. And just also trivia time, Bible trivia, remember, write these down for game night one night. Um, when the boys were born, Abraham was still alive and he would be alive for another 15 years. And we don't think of that because Abraham died in the first part of the chapter. But he hadn't actually. They don't give you these things in order all the time. So Bible trivia time. Abraham is alive when the boys are born. So she is barren and and Isaac prays on her behalf. 
Now, this is first. The great picture of Isaac. The first thing he does in dealing with the fact that they've been trying for 20 years, as it turns out, you know, to have a child, uh, is he prays. He's like, you know, he prays on Rebecca's behalf. And true prayer, prayer is a prayer that's concerned about God's will being done and not our will, right? God's will, and is based on the promises of God's word, both of which is what Isaac wanted. He knew the promise, right? He knew the promise, and so he wanted God's will to be done. Lord, if this is your will, I, you know, this has been promised to me. My wife is barren, and, and I, I understand the promise. It's been passed down to me from my father Abraham. And we know that, that Isaac w- prayed this way because God answered his prayer. And his wife conceived. Now, her pregnancy was a little different than most. First, she was having twins. Right? Not everybody has twins. And second... They struggled within her. Now, moms, do you remember back when you were pregnant? Right? Do you remember the joy of feeling your child move right in the womb? Right, that first kick. Right, that first kick. And and dads, you know, if you were allowed to, you, you know, I would put my hand on you know, Julie's tummy and feel, you know, Dixon, Hudson, or Emily moving around in there, right? And, uh, and then you started, and then, and then you started, uh, and then you'd see her stomach, you know, press as the child. I mean, those weren't very comfortable times. Often, you know, sometimes they would do these, I don't know, aerobic maneuvers, and then Julie would almost come off the couch. She'd be like, Wah! right? You know, there's these, you know, times where they, or it'd be, it wouldn't be comfortable, right? But you could see it. Sometimes you can see them. So then you start experimenting, right? And you're like, well, how, how would the child react if we, if we ate this? How would the child react if we, you know, if, if we drank something really cold? You know, right? How would the child react if, if we turn on this type of music? What, what's the child going to do if I sing, right? If I, Julie sang to all the children, of course. Uh, and, you know, what, how, what if we take a bowl of ice cream and place it on your tummy? Well, is, will he kick it off, right? Can we, so you start playing these games with the, with the child in the womb. Julie was like five months pregnant with Hudson, and she's at the counter, and she's making a smoothie. And she started the mixer, and Hudson literally, I mean, he just went nuts, right? He jumped and twirled and was agitated and upset, and, you know, he didn't calm down for quite some time. That's how he reacted. Uh, in the womb to a smoothie. Now, he loves smoothies today. And, uh, you know, he makes them himself, though he wondered if, if yet he still hasn't calmed down from, from, that, from that event. But, so, you remember those times. Now, take, take what you remember about that, double it, because there's, you know, twins. And then, you know, what if that was a you know, MMA, a mixed martial arts fight? Or what if that was a WWE, a world wrestling, you know, thing going on in your womb, right? I mean, Jacob is launching himself off the top ring and driving the blow into Esau, and Esau is grabbing a chair and he's breaking it across the face of Jacob. And they were performing, you know, famous finishing moves that Stone Cold Steve Austin and The Rock would have been proud of if you watch wrestling, you know what I'm talking about, right? You have the big boot and the leg drop that Hulk Hogan would have done, or, or the jackhammer move, or the tombstone pile driver like The Undertaker uses. They're just in there, just like, boom, with, with each other, right? Now, that would be an interesting pregnancy to remember. 
you, you wouldn't forget that pregnancy probably, right? And it also paints a completely different picture when you get to Genesis 32 and Jacob's wrestling with God, right? And prevails, right? He had some experience with his brother in the womb. They say that that pregnancy is getting company inside one's skin. And uh, however, there's a limit, right? I mean, to how much company you want inside your skin, considering that some of us aren't even comfortable inside our own skin. Jewish, Jewish legend teaches that Jacob and Esau were trying to kill each other in the womb. Jewish legend teaches that every time Rebekah went near an idol's altar, a pagan altar, Esau would get excited. And every time that she went near a place where the Lord was worshipped, Jacob would get excited. The Hebrew word for struggle together here is the word rasatz. And it means to crush or to be crushed. It means to crush each other. It means to oppress each other. So you get the picture of what was going on. I mean, you expect your kids to fight with each other after they are born. You don't necessarily expect it before they're even out of the womb. Right? And obviously, so, so Rebecca was obviously beside herself. I mean, she was hoping for a nice calm pregnancy. Right? So she does what any God-fearing mom would do at this point. She prays. Right? And she's like, Lord, what is going on with my children? And this is what the Lord tells her. It's in verse 23. And he says, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. She's probably thinking at this point, two nations? I thought I was just having twins. The Lord, of course, was being prophetic. Yes, your kids are fighting with each other. They will be, they will grow into, their descendants will be two nations. And these two nations are going to fight with each other. Right? They will be divided. The older shall serve the younger. And that's exactly, of course, how it plays out. Right? Jake, Jacob becomes Israel. Esau is the father of the Edomites. These two nations struggle for most of their history together. Esau, who it tells us here in verse 25, was born red and hairy. Esau means hairy. Right? And I love how they describe it. They say the first, that's Esau, came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak. <laughs> so he was, I'm assuming red hair, but he might have just been red. I, I mean, I was red, right? I was purple, red, right? So, I mean, you come out different colors, you know, when you're born. Um, but I'm assuming red hair. It's usually how often he's described it, with red hair. And then hairy, I mean, not just a mop of red hair. He was just like a little tiny bear, right? <laughs> she gave birth to a bear. And he was hairy, like a, you know, like a hairy cloak. And, you know, Esau is the first redhead mentioned in the Bible, by the way. You, you can use that for trivia night, too. Um, r- red hair color is the most rare color of any natural hair color out there. They say only 1% to 2% of people across the world are redheads. So if we have 8 billion people in the world, that means that you have less than 80 to 160 million people that are red hair. Right? So I was thinking about this because I go off on tangents like this, which aren't necessarily good and they don't help anybody. But I was thinking about this 
when you look at the stats for redheads, uh, the majority, the, the, the one nation with the most redheads, anybody know? Ireland. Yeah, Ireland. Ireland is the one nation with the most redheads, and second is Scotland. All right? And then the Scandinavian countries. That area right over there. Okay? So who settled those nations? Go back to the table of nations in Genesis chapter 10. And it was uh, Jacques, was Jacques, uh, what's Abraham? No. Uh, Noah's sons. Shem, Japheth. It was Japheth, right? So it was descendants of Japheth that for the most part settled that area. So, but they also settled, they settled a wide area. They all settled a wide area, right? This is a large, they have interconnecting things. So they also settled in the area that Abraham's family settled as well. So when you look at red hair and, and such, then it's possible because they also settled in that Syria area where Abraham came from and stuff like that, that somewhere up Esau's tree, probably on his mom's side somewhere, is a descendant of Japheth. And Japheth's family is one with the, the, the red hair gene. But that's, that's neither here nor there. It doesn't help you. Uh, anything as far as the study goes, it was just a tangent I went on when I started to think about red hair. Anyway, Esau is born and he's red and hairy and he grows up to be a mighty hunter. And he's feisty, as you might expect a redhead to be. Right? And, uh, and Isaac liked Esau because of Esau's hunting skills, right? Because he brought back yummy food for him to eat, right? He liked the game. So, and he would later, Esau would later be known as Edom. And Edom means red. And that's where we get the name Edomites, right? And his family will later move into the hill country of, this, of that same name. They named that country because of the red color in the, in the ground and stuff like that. So Esau's descendants eventually dominated the southern lands and they made their living by agriculture and trade and they worshipped pagan gods, fertility gods, like most of the pagan cultures did. Now when you read through the Old Testament and you get to like Deuteronomy 23 verse 7, you'll see that the Lord forbid the Israelites to hate the Edomites. He wouldn't let them hate them. He said, no, they're your brothers. Right? So, so you don't get to hate the Edomites. Yet the Edomites, every chance they got, would continue to attack Israel. And so many wars were fought between the two nations. And as you go down throughout history, you'll see that you know, King Saul fought against the Edomites, Edomites, and King David got control over the Edomites, and so therefore his son Solomon had control over the Edomites. And then during the Maccabean Wars, the Edomites were controlled by the Jews, and they were forced to convert to Judaism. But even so, that being said, the Edomites still kept their hatred for the Jews, Right? They never liked the Jews. And then when Greek became a uh, common language with the, uh, uh, the rise of the Roman Empire, the Edomites were then called Idumeans. Right? They changed their name to Idumeans. And uh, there was one Idumean whose father had converted to Judaism who was named King of Judea. And this Idumean is known to us as King Herod the Great. Right? Who we know ordered a massacre in Bethlehem in an attempt to kill the king of the Jews. Jesus. So he is the descendant of Esau. And so after that, they slowly disappeared into history. As God's word prophesied, they would. And uh, all that just to say that God's prophecy to Rebekah was fulfilled. Right? The older child served the younger. The Edomites always served Israel. 
and Israel proves stronger than Edom. And we see a picture kind of of that right at the moment of their birth. Because Esau comes out first, all red and hairy. And Esau, or, or Jacob, comes out right behind him, holding his brother's heel. Right? Which is almost like a picture of that, I'm going to trip you up. Right? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cause problems for you later. Right? And so that's how come he got named Jacob, which means like heel catcher or supplanter. Right. And so, so Jacob became like the, the homeboy. He was quiet, it said. Right? He lived at home. He lived in tents, much like Abraham and, and Isaac. He, he just hung out in tents. And uh, he was a plain, quiet, peaceful boy. And, uh, and you would thought maybe because he, he, he was very much like Abraham and Isaac in that sense, you would think that he would be favored by Isaac, but yet Rebekah favored Jacob. Right Now, also one thing to understand here. When it says that Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents in verse 27, that word for quiet man or peaceful, as it might say in your translation, uh, is the Hebrew word uh, tom, T-A-W-M. And it means perfect or complete. It means mature. So when they talk about Jacob here and they're saying he's a quiet man or he's a peaceful man, what they're saying is that he is mature, young boy, right? And in contrast, when we look at what the Bible says about Esau, when we go to the New Testament, Hebrews 12, 16, it says Esau is immoral, immoral and godless and unholy. Hebrews 12, 16 says that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. So Jacob was perfect and complete and mature. Esau, unholy, immoral, and godless. Which is what we see next, basically, uh, about him selling his birthright. I mean, many years later, obviously, I mean, the the story fast-forwards. We don't know how many years later it is. But many years later, obviously, Your guess is as good as mine. It says in verse 29, once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. Right? So you can see also now a contrast between Jacob and Esau right here, of course, is that Esau hunts and Jacob cooks. Right? So the only, and just another thing, the only hunter mentioned up to this point in the Bible besides Esau is uh, Nimrod. Right? Who was a mighty hunter against the Lord. So it kind of gives you a picture of Esau as well. So anyway, Esau's hungry and he's exhausted. He's probably hangry, is what he is, as the saying goes, right? And he, he wants some of the red stew. It's a lentil stew, as we, we find out, right? Hudson probably would love it. Hudson loves lentil soups, right? Even Dixon. So he, he wants some of the, the stew that Jacob's cooking. He sort of demands it, right? Listen, give me some of that stew. I'm hungry. I've been out hunting all day. And Jacob's response, it's not... Oh, yeah, here you go, brother. Right? It's not, oh, yeah, you, you must be like starving, dude. Here's, I got a big bowl for you, right? Or, you know, hey, this is a new recipe. Tell me what you think. I, I mixed it up. Here you go. Have some, have some stew. Actually, you can tell they're brothers right here because his response is, uh, sell me your birthright. <laughs> right? I'm not giving you any stew, right? You want, you want some stew from me? Give me something, right? 
sell me your birthright. And you would think that Esau might have had a reaction like, what? For the stew? Right? Are you serious, Jacob? I'm, I'm bigger than you, and I'm red and hairy. Right? <laughs> You're the quiet little homeboy, mama's little, mama's little favorite, right? Ma, is she around? Because I'm going to beat the tar out of you right now and take that stew for myself. Right? But, but that wasn't like Esau's response. So Esau either was really stupid or he was really hungry. Right? And, I, and I'm going to say that he was really hungry. Because uh, his response is rather flippant to me. What he says is, he says, I'm about to die of what use is a birthright to me. Right? And now some people will say that he, what he's saying is, is, one day I'm going to die, I don't care about my birthright. Right? Right. Exactly. You can't take it with you, right? But I personally read it as this. He's like, Jacob, what do I care about birthrights when I'm this hungry? Right? Give me the stew now. I'm about to die. Right? That's how hungry I am. So Jacob says, fine, sell me your birthright. Right? Sell me your birthright. Swear to me. And Esau does. He's like, all right, fine, whatever. Just give me the bowl of stew. Right? So Esau swears to him and he sells his birthright to Jacob and Jacob gives Esau bread and he gives him the stew and Esau ate and drank and rose and went his way and then it says, thus Esau despised his birthright. The first thing that you can take from this is that Jacob was divinely chosen before his birth to receive the birthright and the blessing. There was no need for him to scheme and play games to get it. He didn't have to take advantage of his brother. He didn't have to do that at all. And you might be saying, well, what's the big deal? Right? I mean, what's a birthright anyway? What's the importance of a birthright? And the birthright's important because the firstborn Right, was given certain unique rights. Right? And they were given certain uh, unique responsibilities and privileges. And people in ancient cultures attached great value to the firstborn son. He was believed to represent the, the prime of human strength and vitality in, in the family, the firstborn. Right? Maybe we should tell that to Dixon. Give him a warning now. Yeah, you're the firstborn. A married couple's firstborn male child was given priority and preeminence in the family. It was given the best of the inheritance. As a matter of fact, he inherited twice, twice as much as all the other sons. And the firstborns, of course, in a kingly line, of course, would be successor to the throne. Right? So the firstborn would become head of the family. And the firstborn would become spiritual leader of the family when the father passed away. So in the case of this family, in the case of Isaac and Rebekah and Jacob and Esau, the birthright determined who was going to inherit the covenant God made with Abraham, the covenant of a land and a nation and Messiah. Right? That's what the birthright entitled. So who was the firstborn? Esau. But what did God say? God said the older will serve the younger. Right? And it seems that Esau didn't care about his birthright. 
right? He despised it. It means in the Hebrew that he held it in contempt. He thought it was worthless. Worthless. God's promises are worthless. And some people say, well, who's wrong here? Right? Neither of them seem to be really great examples here. You know, because Jacob's scheming and lying and getting, you know, taking advantage of his brother to get the birthright, and Esau is just a big bully and doesn't care about the birthright anyway. I mean, who's wrong? Esau or Jacob? Martin Luther put it this way. He said, Jacob is buying something that is already his, and Esau is selling something that didn't belong to him. That being said, you have to understand that Jacob is not absolved from his actions here. Right? He is responsible for them. Right? Uh, Warren Wiersbe says that divine sovereignty does not destroy human responsibility. And Jacob was chosen by God. And with that comes a great responsibility to do God's will. And yet Jacob showed a lack of faith. Very much like Abraham in certain times of Abraham's life where he couldn't trust and stand on the promises. He tried to scheme his way into getting promises fulfilled or getting it, right? Hey, hey Abraham, why don't you take Hagar? Maybe we can fulfill God's promise this way. Hey, Jacob, why don't you con your brother out of his birthright? We can fulfill God's promises this way. I'm sure that his well, as we know, his mom had a lot to do. Jacob's mom, Rebecca, had a lot to do with some of the choices that Jacob did and some of the games that he played and his scheming and his conning. But that's the thing is that Jacob was chosen by God and with that comes a great responsibility to do God's will. He should have been doing God's will. He should have been standing on the promises and trusting God that God would see them through exactly as he said he would. You would have expected that his mom, Rebecca, would have told him, listen, before you were born, God told me that your brother Esau is going to serve you, that you're going to be stronger than him, and that the promise is going to come through you. You you didn't have to play these games. It's a moment of weakness for Jacob. But Esau as well took his position as firstborn lightly. And in that he sinned against God and his family. Because he didn't care about the position he was in. He didn't care about what was coming to him. He didn't care about his inheritance or any of God's promises. When he was telling him that, hey, listen, what's a birthright to me? Just give me the bowl of stew. What he is saying at that time, he says, I don't care what God has promised us. I don't care what God has told us. Just give me that bowl of stew. That bowl of stew is worth more to me right now than God's promises. And therefore he despised his birthright. So both Jacob and Esau sinned against God here in their actions. But yet God is faithful. Right? And he, did, he fulfilled his promises as we see when we go through this story. But you have to understand that God did not take this lightly. He did not take it lightly. He did not take it lightly that Esau despised his birthright even though it was never a promise to Esau to begin with. Right? Because it tells us in the Old Testament, in uh, Malachi, 
uh, chapter one. It's, it says, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? And then God says, is it not Esau Jacob's brother? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. Right? I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. That's strong words from God. God says, listen, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. And it's repeated again in Romans chapter 9. When they're talking about it, he repeats it again. Right? And not only so, also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Right? Those are strong words from the Lord. And so this tells you how important this was. Right? It's strong words, and we need to heed them when we think about it, when we try to apply this to our walk with God. Now, here's the thing about firstborns in the Old Testament, specifically as compared to the New Testament. Everything you read about firstborns and the importance of the firstborn in the Old Testament comes to fruition in Jesus Christ. Right. All prior implication of the firstborn's role in the Bible are there to illuminate Christ's preeminence over all creation and in the family of God. Right. Colossians 1.15 tells us that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Right. And then Colossians 1.18 tells us that he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Right? Firstborn ref- refers to Jesus being first in prominence. Right? When it says that he is the firstborn from the dead, which it also says in Revelation chapter 1, verse 5, right? and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, right? that means that he is the highest of those raised from the dead. Right? Not the first in time to be raised from the dead, but the highest of those, most preeminent of those raised from the dead. It's a title of honor that only belongs to Jesus. And just for the record, the firstborn of all creation does not mean that God, that Jesus was created. Okay. Rabbis use that phrase that it's a messianic title. And they use that phrase in reference to Yahweh as well. Right. They call him the firstborn of the world. And trust me, they were not saying that God was created. It does not mean that Jesus was created. Some people twist that. Oh, look, this is proof that Jesus is a created being. No, no, absolutely it's not, right? It's, it's a title of honor. It's a messianic title. Psalms 89, verses 27 to 29 says this, And I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. My steadfast love I will keep for him forever, and my covenant will stand firm for him. I will establish his offspring forever and his throne as the days of the heavens. And that's Jesus. Right? Jesus is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. There is no one else as preeminent. He is the firstborn. So with that, or I should probably say in that, in Christ, we now have a birthright. Right? Through Jesus, we have an inherited a birthright. So in case you forgot, let's go over a couple of things again. 
It tells us, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith in Romans 4.13. Then it tells us in Galatians 3.29, and if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Right? Jesus is the appointed heir of all things. And we, through his grace and our faith in him, are counted as joint heirs. Titus chapter 3, verses 4 through 7 says, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Right, so what's our birthright? What have we inherited? These are some of my favorite verses. It's in Ephesians chapter 1. And you guys, if you haven't, you should highlight it. You should highlight this section in Ephesians chapter 1. Right? I've read this book more than any other book, Ephesians. But our, our birthright, our inheritance is right here. It's verses 3 to 14. And it says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Did you hear that? It says he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. So we have been adopted, been grafted in through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, all for God's glory, which, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Verse 7, read this one. It says, in him we have redemption through his blood. There's one thing right there. What do you have in Christ Jesus? You have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses. You have forgiveness in Christ Jesus according to the riches of his grace. What's it? According to his grace, right? Which he lavished upon us. That word in the Greek doesn't mean he just lightly put it on there. It means he dumped the entire thing over your head, right? It's like how I put butter on my toast in the morning. I lavished that piece of toast with butter, right? He lavished it upon us. I have butter with toast. That's what I have in the morning, right? So he lavished it upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to the purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him, verse 11, we have obtained an inheritance, in Christ we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. There are people who always tell me, well, I don't know, I struggle. I struggle knowing whether or not I'm saved. I struggle wondering whether or not God loves me. I understand the struggle. I mean, 
Satan is a fiendish little bad guy, right? And, and he's going to whisper every chance he gets in your ear and tell you you're not worthy. You don't deserve it. God doesn't really love you. You've actually made a mistake and he crossed your name off the list. He's Santa Claus, right? If you've watched the new Santa Claus thing on Disney, right? The elves have a little say in the word now. And if it, the Santa's like, oh, well, he's bad. And they're like, well, no, he's not really bad. We don't call it naughty anymore. So he's just, you know, he's okay. Oh, I guess I have to give him a gift, huh? But it's not like that. You know, you gave your life to Christ. You are his. You are his. And the Holy Spirit testifies to that, right? Sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee. The Holy Spirit guarantees it to you. And if you don't hear the Holy Spirit guarantee you, to you that you are Christ's, then maybe you should start wondering, right? But if you're hearing him saying, don't listen to that, you're mine. You have nothing to fear. I don't care how bad your days get, right? Or how much you screw up. You will hear that voice. That Holy Spirit will tell you no, right? Nothing can take you out of God's grasp, right? You are safe. That's our birthright. This is what we have inherited. And we will be taking possession of it to the praise of his glory. So I have to ask as we wrap up, because I already see the kids poking their head around the door going, oh, are they done yet? <laughs> do you despise your birthright? Right? right? Do you dis- I mean, it's a question you should ask. It is a question you should ask yourselves. Do you despise your birthright? I mean, do you take these words lightly? Because people will say, well, what's despising your birthright? You're not going to get a clear answer from anybody, but what's, your, you know, what's despising your birthright? Well, despising your birthright is considering the word of God and his promises worthless. Right? It's, it's taking God's word and holding it in contempt. It's willing to sell God's word for a bowl of stew. Right? Figuratively speaking. Maybe you literally want to trade your salvation for a bowl of stew, but I don't think that you do, right? But we do it in other ways, right? We do it in other ways. So are you willing to sell your birth rate for a bowl of stew? No, I hope not, right? I pray not. I don't think you're that foolish. Don't be that foolish. Don't despise your birthright, right? Respect what is holy. Never throw away what is godly, Right? Never throw away what is honorable for the sake of temporary pleasure or to satisfy man. You don't serve man. You serve God. Right? So just as Jacob was chosen by God, so are you. And with that comes a greater responsibility to do God's will. Your will should be to do God's will in everything that you do and every step that you take. So remain in Jesus. Stand firm in his word. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. It's salvation to those who believe. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. And I pray, Lord, that you just continue to speak this to us and help us with this and help us live this out. Remind us of this and let this be our testimony that we, our will is to do God's will. And that we love you. We want our lives to testify to that. 
I pray, Lord, that we can continue to be a light and shine in the darkness and to point people to the hope found in Jesus Christ. We thank you for this, Lord. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.